It's my great joy to invite you to open your copy of God's perfect and precious word to Psalm 50 this morning, Psalm 50. As you do that, uh, let me say how grateful I am for that time of praise this morning. Uh, That was uh, Pastor Nate's idea and it was such a blessing to me. One of the things I want to say I thank God for this morning is uh, our other pastors and our staff which constantly amaze me and uh, serve in ways that um, boggle my mind and bring conviction to my own life and call me to be better. Uh, I don't know if you've been here around very long, you'll notice uh, something. Uh, I had a pastor that, you know, I've been connected with him for about uh, 15 years and keeps up with our church and so he contacted me not too long ago, and he said, nobody ever leaves your staff team. And if you think about it, it is a very rare thing, and um, that is a gift from God. And uh, it is largely because of you, uh, because they want to be a part of what God is so obviously doing in our midst. Uh, many of them could do all kinds of other things. Uh, but they long to be here, and I am really, really thankful for that. Well, Psalm 50 this morning as we begin a three-week study on Thanksgiving praise. And today we want to thank God uh, for that He is an all-sufficient judge. Now, in a moment, I'm going to read just one verse uh, before we study together, but uh, let me point out a few things about the Psalms. The Psalms are unique. They're a divinely given, we could say, hymn book, but we could also rightly say prayer book. We are to come to the Psalms knowing that they communicate to us in a unique way and a way that we need. And they almost reflexively call for us to pray in response. The great Protestant reformer Martin Luther said the Psalms are a mini-Bible. And what he meant by that is all of the themes in the Bible are reflected in the Psalms. There is much about creation. There is much about the fall into sin. There is much about redemption in Christ Jesus. And there is much about the promise of an age to come, a new creation, a new heavens, and a new earth. A mini-Bible. But... The Protestant reformer John Calvin said the Psalms are an anatomy of the soul. So think about it. When we invest our lives in the Psalms, they reach us at a different level and a different place than a lot of other literature, but they call us to see the message of the whole Bible according to our whole being. And so one of the things the Psalms do is they call for us to exercise the full range of emotions that God has given us in relation to Him and what He has done for us. And at the end of the day, since it's a mini-Bible, these are the songs of Jesus. Because the Bible is about Christ. And so the Psalms are about Christ. Well, I want to invite you to stand For the reading of God's perfect and precious word this morning, Psalm 50, and I'm just simply going to read verse 21. These things you have done, 
and I've been silent. You thought that I am was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, teach us, transform us according to your truth today and make us a people whose lives are governed by thanksgiving. Oh, Lord, we pray that it would be so. We pray, Lord, that when people speak of us, that one of the primary things that they would say is, man, that was a thankful person. That is a thankful person. Lord, make it so, and make it so in Christ. In His name we pray, amen. You may be seated. If we look back at Psalm 14, it says this in verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, that language there of a fool is not name-calling. This is a, a word that carries the idea of having a brutish self-focus. One is a fool because they're not following the way that leads to life, the Bible says. One is a fool because they think that they can live this world with themselves as the reference point. It doesn't have anything to do with someone's mental ability or intelligence. Being a fool in this way is not a mental problem, it is a moral problem. A fool says in his heart, there is no God. To look at the world that God has created, to see all of its intricacies, to see its amazing design, and to somehow, some way say there is no God is foolish indeed. It leads to character that is corrupt and conduct that is careless. It is a willful closing of the mind we find out in Romans 1 that, that the heavens declare the glory of God in such a way that all are without excuse because they know there must be a God, but they suppress the knowledge of the truth, it tells us in Romans 1, in unrighteousness. So this willful closing of the mind to the divine and ordering one's life based on that assertion, living as if there is no God. Now, I start out this sermon in the same way that one of my heroes of the faith, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the famous pastor in Westminster in London, did, because he, he wanted to say this, that we can all agree that it is a terrible, awful thing to say there is no God. It is a tragic thing. And ultimately, it is a damning thing. The folly of living a life as if there is no God is a terrible, awful thing. But then he went on to say this, but in the Psalms, there is a folly that's even worse. It's hard to imagine. You see, 
The man who, or the person who says there is no God and orders their, their lives based on that is at least being consistent with their own principles. They're at least being consistent with themselves. But Psalm 50 talks about something different. Not the one who stands over here and says, there is no God. But Psalm 50 talks about the one who stands over here and said, there is a God. But they live and think and act as if there's not. Lloyd-Jones says, that man is not even consistent with himself. And that is an even greater folly. Psalm 14 is about outsiders. But Psalm 50 is about those who profess. Those who claim to be a part of the people of God. Psalm 50 is about that one thing. And if we were looking for a summary verse that has within it the heart of what is wrong, we find it in the verse that I read a few moments ago, Psalm 50, verse 21. I'll read it again. These things you have done, and I have been silent. Here it is. You thought that I am was one like yourself. Now, a lot of your translations just say, you thought that I was one like your self. But most literally here it says, I am was one like yourself. It's purposely pointing to the name of God here. You thought I was like you. A lot of us think, uh, yeah, you know, God is, is like a better version of us. Notice what he says at the end. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. You see, it's an awful thing to live as though God is like us. As though God has the same priorities as we do. As if we can call God to the things that we have decided are important. In other words, to domesticate God. To get God down to a level where He seems controllable to us. You thought I am was one like yourself. And the Lord says that is cause for rebuke. And He lays the charge before them. Well, let's dig in. Look at chapter 50, verses 1 through 6. We see this all-sufficient judge. At least I have light. I will lead those of you in darkness to the light. I'm just going to keep going. Psalm 50, verse 1. The mighty one, the Lord, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth of the nations from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, uh, that is Jerusalem, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Meaning, God's glory is seen from the rising of sun to the setting. God is speaking here, and the, the beginning of this verse that is translated here, the mighty one, 
God, the Lord, is literally El, Elohim, Yahweh. It's a piling on of divine names to speak to the solemnness of the one who speaks here, the one who has summoned the earth, the one who has summoned the nation. You know, this is kind of like if you were to introduce the president and you would say, I want to introduce to you today the, the president, the, let there be light, the, the president, the, the, the commander of the armed forces, the leader of the free world. What are you doing? You're piling on the descriptions to say, this is someone who you should listen to. Well, that pales in comparison, of course, to El, Elohim, Yahweh. El is the, the supreme one, the sovereign. Elohim is the only God. It's what distinguishes him from man. And Yahweh is that great covenant name, the, the I am, the God who comes in steadfast loves and makes covenant with his people. But notice here, beginning in verse 3, our God comes, he does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire usually a reference to revelation, that He comes in this devouring fire because He is the God who reveals and the God who judges. Around Him is a mighty tempest, speaking to the fact He is a God of judgment. He calls to the heavens above and the earth that He may judge His people. Now, when the Bible calls heaven and earth in this way as witnesses, God is the all-sufficient judge. He is summoning heaven and earth to witness what he is saying. The Bible does that again and again, and it does it in context to say this is a solemn declaration from God. Pull up and listen. What God is saying matters for eternity. This is not a judge that you can disagree with. There are consequences. So the sovereign, the one who is above us, the one who makes covenant with the people by His grace, He speaks and He says, okay, here are my witnesses, heaven and earth. Let nothing be left out. Look with me at verse 5. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare His righteousness for God Himself is judge. Selah, which probably means to lift up and to to pause, to to think upon these things. A a liturgical device here, a a, a musical notation to, to pause. But notice what's being said here. Because it's leading us down a road. He has summoned the earth. He has summoned the nations. He has called His faithful ones among those. Those who have made covenant with Him by sacrifice according to His design. You see, there is an expectation here as we are looking at this that God is about to give it to the nations. Those who are not His people. And He does the opposite. From verses 7 through 22, I want to call this the greater folly. The greater folly. This folly of saying, oh yes, I believe in God. 
but not ordering one's life in any way as if that statement is reality. The greater folly. There are two primary charges he brings against not the nations, but against his people, against Israel. The first one is this, religious formalism. The idea that when I do these certain things and activities that I've been told to do, I'm doing God a favor. The idea that somehow, someway, if I do the right things, God owes me. I put him in my debt. I help him out. I I do him a favor. Look with with me beginning in verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. Now notice the end. I am God, your God. Hear, O my people, the people he speaks to. I am God, I am your God. That is the, the covenant formula. That's the covenant language of the people he gathers. But look at what is sandwiched in between. O Israel, I will testify against you. This is the surprise in this section. These are words of judgment against the professing people of God. We shouldn't be surprised. 1 Peter 4.17 says, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? God purifying His people here, issuing this call, testifying against them and calling heaven and earth to witness his testimony. Notice verses 8 and 9, the nature of this. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Oh, he's not rebuking them for bringing sacrifices. They were commanded to at this time. That was a matter of obedience. He says, your burnt offerings are continually before me. That's not a problem. But notice verse 9. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. So so if the problem is not the offering of sacrifices, in fact, if they refuse to, they would be rebels against what God had told them to do. If that's not the problem, why does He say to this people, a certain people, that I will not accept sacrifices from your house or from your fold? What's the problem here? We, we see it as it unfolds. It becomes clear. Verse 10. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills. Now notice that language. I know them. I know all the birds. Not just I know of them. I know all the birds of the hills. And all that moves in the field is mine. All the animals out there, mine. I am El, Elohim, Yahweh. All of the birds that would be offered in certain sacrifices out there, they are all mine. I don't just know of them, I know them. Why does he go out of his way to say that? Because this people seem to be acting like They are doing God a favor by offering the prescribed sacrifice as though God needed them to offer it. God needs nothing or He's not God. If God needs something, 
then you can't trust Him with eternity. God needs nothing. God is perfect. God is perfect in fellowship in the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God is not needy. God is the one who meets the needs of people who are needy. The idea that God told them to offer sacrifices because without them He wasn't going to get the animals He needed is a form of insane thinking. It's folly. I own it all. It's not that I need you to give, it's that you need to give. There's a lesson that you need to learn built into the fabric here of this activity in human history that's going to tell you about me. And if you get it rightly, you understand that what it's going to tell you about me is that I need nothing. It's not going to tell you that I am needy. That's the opposite. So then he goes on to say this, beginning in verse 12. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world... And its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Leviticus 3 did call sacrifices food offered to the Lord. But it's not food offered to the Lord out of his neediness. It's not offered to him in that sense. It's offered out of our neediness. And our recognition of the fact that we need a substitutionary sacrifice. And it's offered to the Lord in the sense of the Lord says, By my sovereign grace alone, I have made a way for you because of sacrifice. Not out of my need, but out of yours. The idea that if we don't bring the offerings at this time, God was going to be malnourished or something? It's folly. Let, let, this, this language, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. Uh, I love Annabeth here. But, you know, if, uh, if Annabeth acted like she was in charge and she owned everything, you know, I, I tell Annabeth, if I need money, I ain't coming to you. Why? She ain't got none. I may not have a lot, but I got a lot compared to her. The Lord says, if I am hungry, why would I ask you? I own everything. And by the way, the fact that he owns everything and he's not needy is the only ground by which you can trust him. With eternity. Are you grasping this? The act of showing up and offering the sacrifices. Just going through it formally... And thinking that some, somehow, some way, just the formal action, the, the mechanical doing of it, somehow did God a favor and put him in your debt, is so dangerous. We don't offer sacrifices in that way on this side of the cross. But there's all kinds of things that we substitute. Well, I mean, I go to church every week or almost every week and I sign up for this and I volunteer for this and I go down and feed these people and we act as though often that God owes us because of these things that we do. Now, I want you to see that the problem here 
is the idea that these things are mechanisms by which you earn something. That turns what you're doing into a mechanical sort of rebellion against God, not service to Him. Here's the alternative, verses 14 and 15. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Do you hear it? It's not about what you do for God. It's about what God has done for you. You see, their misunderstanding was the purpose of the sacrifices and the offerings. The significance of the sacrifices and offerings was in their heart attitude, was in what they were learning according to the plan and design of God. It was a concrete expression, or it was to be, of a faith-filled thankfulness that God has made a way through sacrifice. And you offer it to Him, not because He is needy of it, but because you are. We come. Not because God is needy of us to assemble on the Lord's day, but because we are needy of Him. And He has promised to meet us here in a unique way as we assemble in His name. You give, not because God is needy and needs your resources, but that you need to give. You need to have your life and heart tethered to the purposes and plan of God. You need to be a person who does what you do because you are thankful. Let me make one important caveat here. And that is that there is a total difference between you doing your duty even when you don't feel like it, to fight for faith and thankfulness, that's totally different than you doing something in a dutiful way, thinking that somehow, some way you're earning something in God's sight or doing God a favor. You see, sometimes you don't feel like it, and you are not thankful, but you know that's wrong, And so you do your duty because doing your duty puts you in a place to bring correction to your own life because a lot of people in the the body are not like in that same condition you are and you're fighting to get in the right place, but you know you're in the wrong place. Duty's not a bad thing. But when you act as though duty or the doing of particular things appeases God, now you're in a bad place. If you act like, it's enough. I mean, I don't want to get carried away with this thing. I'll just do just enough. We talk to our kids about the difference between obeying and honoring. There is bare obedience. If I tell you to pick that up and take it to your room, and you go, you obeyed. You didn't honor. And in my sight, 
That's not real obedience. See, what we're being called to here is to fight, to never think this great folly, that religious formalism, that, that the mechanics of what we do is doing God a favor. <laughs> you see, what's beyond the ritual and the sacrifice is its purpose. And that is to birth a person who offers consistently a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And so then when you do, when, when the person brought the sacrifice and they're going, I cannot believe that God has made a way. I cannot believe that, 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 that my guilt is somehow some, uh, symbolically here going to be uh, assuaged in his sight because of, of this animal that hasn't done anything wrong. I have done the wrong, but God just chooses this. I am overwhelmed with his grace and goodness. Now that act is something that glorifies and honors God. Let me put it this way. God does not need our worship, but we need to worship God. God would still be God if we offered Him nothing, but we would be less than human. See, we are created in God's image. And when we fail to recognize God, we are less than the image bearers that God has created us to be. And it's why the Bible so consistently talks about those who totally reject God ending up ultimately almost in animalistic behaviors and attitudes. A brutishness. We are less than human if we fail to offer to God, to look to God. Let me put it like this. Sacrifices were food for thought to teach us They were not food to feed a needy and hungry God. But there's a second thing. And the second thing is religious hypocrisy. This is the idea that talk is enough. We see this in verses 16 through verse 22. Look with me beginning in verse 16. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my statutes? Or take my covenant on your lips. Look at verses 17 through 20. You hate discipline, or the words instruction. You hate discipline and instruction. You cast my words behind you. Now notice, this is a person who speaks of the commands of God. This is a person who speaks about the covenant of God. But in reality, they don't want to be instructed They're using the words of God to try to instruct others while at the same time they cast the words of God behind them. It's called hypocrisy. Wearing a mask. Trying to be somebody they're not and using God's name to do it. He goes on here. If you see a thief, you're pleased with him. And you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil. Do you notice something here? Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not lie. Referring back to the commandments here. Verse 20, you sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. Now, what is this a picture of? This is a picture of someone who is controlled by their own self-interest. And the idea here is they're making a name for themselves, but the wickedness is that they're using the name of God and the commands of God 
and the covenant of God to do it. God being made over into the self-interested image of one of His image bearers. You see where this builds? It builds toward verse 20. You use words against your brother. Now, I don't think the reference here in this context of worship is immediate family. It's your brother in the faith. Your brother in the community of faith. You use your words against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. You see, the, the issue here, the motive in this context is one who is using the language of the faith to build themselves up and to make a name for themselves. This is religious hypocrisy. Talk is enough. I've told you before, one of the things I'm always worried about is when I meet somebody for the first time who comes here, and it seems to me like in our first conversation, they're kind of trying to brag with how much theology books that they've read, how much theology they know. By the way, there's never been one time I went, wow. I, it's, no. It's like, well, what's going on here? There are a lot of people who substitute learning theological categories and things like that for real faith. I know I'm somebody because of what I read, what, what I study. Now, reading and studying can be a good thing, but the issue is your disposition. And there are all kinds of people, especially today, these words in our context are so very important because there are people out there every day who are out there typing stuff on their computers and, and, and they're the, what I call the well, well, actually people, right? They always want to try to triangulate themselves and say, well, no, that's not actually right. And they, they write these long things that are, well, but that's not actually right either. I've risen above this. I understand this. Anybody I know that spends their life debating things on a superficial forum and medium is usually doing very little for the sake of the kingdom. Almost never. Right? There's a way for these words to be totally empty. And there are plenty of intelligent people that can jargon up anything to look spiritual. There are all kinds of today keyboard theological cowboys who try to be somebody behind a keyboard and it's totally meaningless if their lives are not backed up by the things that they say. And if they are backed up by the things that they say, this image building would go away anyway. We see far too often that what drives many people today, even in the name of Christ, is to create an image of who they are rather than a reality. Doing the work of spiritual disciplines is not glamorous. And very few people show up and applaud. I will be a totally ineffective pastor if I am not a person of prayer. But I don't expect any of you to show up in the morning after I pray and give me a round of applause. You're not going to do it. Most of what really matters is not 
glamorous at all. And one of the sad things that people fall into is they think that the spirituality that really matters comes with a big platform that people see. God forbid that you believe that. Satan would like nothing more than for you to believe that. No, the faith that matters is the faith that is genuine. That speaks of the covenant from a standpoint of humility. With a sense of unbelief and yet belief all at the same time. That yes, that does indeed apply to me. Who speaks of the words of God and the commands of God with a sense of wonder that God has revealed Himself to someone like me and you. That's where we get to verse 21. These things you have done and I've been silent. In other words, these these things of religious formalism, these things of religious hypocrisy, you thought that I am was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Now note that this is the way people always are. I've had people sharing the faith, my faith with them say, well, you know, if, if God is who you say He is, where is He? The world is so bad, why hasn't He come back? And in other words, if He hasn't come back on my timetable, then he, he can't be God. People who walk in sin oftentimes reason, even those who profess the faith. Well, God hasn't done anything about it yet. He must not be going to do something about it. We think about the fact that I'm a parent, and I'll say, if you do that, I'm going to make you do this. And, and then it happens, and we forget we said that, and you get away with it. God is not like you, and God is not like me. That is not what God is like. If God has not brought the judgment on your life, that is not a, a, a failing on God's part. That is grace giving you time to repent. Do you notice how wicked it is for someone to take what God is graciously allowing and to make an accusation against Him as though it means He's weak? No, it means He's strong enough to save you. He's strong enough to accomplish His purposes. He is not like you and He is not like me. The reason we look out and we see the world in terms of uh, am I good enough? Am I better than that person? I feel inferior to that person. I, well, why doesn't God allow me to, to have more of a place where I'm seen as more? The reason we think like that is we think God is like us. It's the reason throughout the Bible it keeps going. God does not look on the outward. God looks upon the heart. When we think that if God really cared about us, He would give us outward sort of blessings where people applaud us, we think that He is like us. He is not. Oftentimes, the very things that we long for, the grace of God is keeping them from coming to pass. And we think it's a failure on God's part, when in reality, it's His grace. It's a blessing. Verse 22. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. That's strong language. Some of you might shift around in your seats. This language of judgment like this. That somehow, some way, you might say to yourself, well, that's not fitting for God to say something like that. Really? God is not like you, and God is not like me. 
You know how you can know it's fitting for God to say something like that? Because there was a sinless son of God who took on human flesh and he was torn apart. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was torn apart. He was split open and nailed to a cross with a sword jabbed through his side. Not for his own sins, for he had none but for the sins of those who would believe in Him. This language is not befitting of God. The reality of what God took in your place that fits this language is your only hope. And that brings us to verse 23. This is the way of wisdom. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. The one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Now, the Bible keeps doing this. We, we studied earlier in the year of Thanksgiving, and the Bible will list this whole slew of sins, and the solution it gives is thankfulness. Be thankful. But we have such a hard time thinking that it's really that powerful And it's that important. And yet it is. Why? Because thanksgiving is the opposite of pride. And thanksgiving is the executioner of entitlement. Why does the person do religious formalism? Because they think if I just simply check the box and do this duty, I'm entitled of this from God. What is the person who just has a a theoretical paper, talking knowledge of God, put that out there and think, well, if I know these things, I'm entitled to be viewed as spiritual. There is nothing more wicked, and that's the reason why it uses the word wicked, than a theoretical knowledge of God that's not lived out. It's mocking God in the worst sort of way. A person who can articulate the sovereignty of God, but lives as if there is no God, is literally shaking his fist and spitting at God. But thankfulness is the executioner of entitlement. Because thankfulness is rooted in humility before God. And humility before God says, I don't deserve anything, but God has given me. There's nothing empty in my hands I bring, only To the cross I cling. You see, thankfulness is so powerful. Thanksgiving is the active side of faith-rooted humility. Or I love it as C.S. Lewis puts it. Thanksgiving is almost inner health made audible. And by the way, this is all about Jesus. Charles Edden Spurgeon said this kind of sacrifice of thanksgiving made to experimentally know the Lord's salvation. Now that word experimentally was often used in his day and it means just simply real. It means this is not theoretical and this is not formal. Experiential means that is affected all of the aspects of your life. Not that you live it perfectly, 
but all of what makes you, you is affected by the reality of God. Spurgeon says the way you grow in that is to actually be thankful. You see, this sort of thankfulness drives us deeper into the heart of God. We are created to be this kind of people. By the way, an all-sufficient judge, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.1, Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. Religious formalism, doing God a favor. Jesus says in Matthew 9.13, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous but sinners. Religious hypocrisy, talk is enough. Jesus says in Matthew 15, 8, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. John 3, 18 says, Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And you heard as Pastor Nate read earlier, the way of the wise that we're told about here is reiterated in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 13, 15. Through Him, that is through Christ, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. And by acknowledge His name, it means more than simply acknowledge intellectually. It means the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name, meaning with one's whole being. If you are truly thankful for what God has done for you, that's the way you fight these dangerous paths that we can get on. That's the way we battle that. It's with the character of God, with the grace of God, with the the mercy of God. We keep going back to exclaiming ourselves, El Elohim, Yahweh, O Sovereign One, God above all, Covenant God, You have come down to Me. My life is not explained in terms of what I do for You, but in what You have done for Me. You need nothing, but You have given Me everything. Let's pray. Lord, I am overwhelmed with the message of this psalm. And Lord, I am heartbroken over the way often in our culture we not only don't confront this sort of nominal religion, but rather we embrace it and we treat it as though it's normal. May that never be so here. May Your grace protect us from such wickedness. And Lord, may You help us today. There are people here who came here today that don't know where they stand in Your sight and To everyone here, oh Lord, I pray that You would draw them to Yourself. That You would pour out Your mercy. 
that this would be the day of their salvation. That they would leave here able to understand thankfulness for the first time. And Lord, I pray for all of us. All of us drift into ways of thinking that are not in obedience to the cross. All of us have thoughts we have not taken captive to obey Christ. And yet, Lord, help us to keep fighting. This psalm calls us to fight that fight until the one comes who is the ultimate judge of the living and the dead. And the one who tells us that he is the way, the truth, and the life. We pray these things in the name of Christ, our wisdom. Amen.